Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to be back with you as we finish up a discussion of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, a text in which Paul, again, is beginning his discussion of what it looks like to be engaged in that good fight that he has commanded Timothy to be engaged in, what it looks like to fight, in the case of today, for unity. We live in a culture where unity is still a rare jewel, a culture of great division, culture of anger and ongoing dissension, and a culture then that is constantly hungering and, and trying to at least manufacture some semblance, some appearance of trust and comfort and security in the presence of other people. If you've worked in any number of corporate environments, you've experienced a number of ways in which that unity is attempted to be manufactured. One of the most popularly unpleasant examples of that is in those forced team-building activities that some of us have participated in. Most famously, the trust fall. Um, some of you perhaps participate in that. Even if you haven't, you've seen these types of things uh, demonstrated on television and in movies, maybe. I'm not a fan of these activities. Anyone I've ever worked with can attest to that fact. Um, because it always feels very forced. Uh, but as a college kid, I was employed by a summer camp in Oklahoma, and I was required as a camp counselor, of course, to take part in these forced bonding activities, these activities that were assumed to be good and would, of course, benefit all the campers. I pushed against it as much as I could, assuming it was neither helpful nor uh, negative for my group. But in one particular week as a counselor, I decided I would try to think outside the box. I had a particularly difficult cabin of boys probably around freshman year um, in high school who fought constantly with each other. And I thought that the typical trust fall wouldn't be wise. And so I thought, I'll try something new. And in my infinite wisdom as a 21-year-old, I decided to come up with a, uh, with a game where I, the adult supervision, would hide in the woods and I would instruct this cabin of boys who don't get along together to work together as a team to find me. I did this with my co-counselor. We were basic friends. We enjoyed the time with each other. We began talking about, you know, how camp was going and our frustrations of working with kids and how we couldn't wait for the week to be over, no, uh, no doubt. And after about 20 minutes, my co-counselor and I realized, you know, we haven't heard our kids at all. It's been some time since we led them deep into the woods of this thousand-acre campground. And maybe... Maybe this wasn't a great team-building exercise. <laughs> wasn't long before I realized how poorly it had gone, for as we began seeking out our cabin, we realized first and foremost, not only had they not found us, they hadn't stayed together as a team. They had decided to split up in the woods and began meandering about, just wandering around these you know, campgrounds. And so I quickly realized that I had about 15, 15 uh, 13, 14, 15-year-olds just wandering around the campground. And I, of course, panicked. And I enlisted the help of a few other counselors, um, both out of a concern for the kids, but more out of a concern for my own job, because I knew how this was going to look if my boss found out. And by God's grace, we eventually slowly found these kids, or I should say these kids all gradually found their way back to the main campground. Um, and I quickly said, all right, well, job well done, kids. You know, we've all learned a big lesson today. Um, they, of course, had learned nothing, but I did learn something. I learned that just because you call something team building doesn't actually mean it's going to build up any sort of team. And those things, as frustrating as they can seem, might actually be to the great detriment of people if they're not responded to, if they're not handled in a wise, mature manner. 
I give that example because as we enter back into the text of 1 Timothy, we find ourselves in a routine that seems on the surface to be very safe, very simple. It's the activity of prayer, particularly corporate prayer, as we'll be discussing. It's an activity that, as we saw last week, is ultimately arguably the most powerful tool we have when it comes to engaging in the warfare that we're all engaged in. It is, for the benefit of today, essential to our own unity as the people of God, and it is something that, because of its familiarity, can feel very simple, very straightforward. It can give us the, the feeling that as long as we're just doing something that resembles prayer, then surely it will benefit us, surely it will result in the, top, the type of unity that Paul is encouraging here in 1 Timothy. But what I hope we understand today is that prayer is not that straightforward. At least that is to say, prayer also requires certain rules to be followed. In the case of 1 Timothy 1, or 1 Timothy 2, in our verses today, verse 7 and 8, we'll see the significance of that prayer, the power of that prayer, and its ability to unify, can only be found when our prayer really is marked by, by certain characteristics. Those characteristics speak to the essential content of a unifying prayer a specific context that will also bring unity, and finally, the posture that Paul is also requiring. It's my hope as we consider this text today that we might walk away with both a greater appreciation of the gift that is corporate prayer and a proper attitude of self-reflection as we consider, are we really praying the way Scripture encourages, or are we simply going through the motions and doing so actually the detriment of ourselves and the body as a whole? As we get started, let me read the entirety of our text and we will ask for God's blessing as we begin our time. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll pick it up in verse 1 since it really began there and read through verse 8. There again Paul writes, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I went the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. This is God's word. Let us ask for his blessing upon our time. Our Father in heaven, again, we are humbled by the opportunity to come before you this morning. We are grateful for the opportunity we've already had to sing songs of worship to you as we have reminded ourselves and reminded one another of your holiness, of your goodness, of your love and mercy, God. And truly, you are gracious to us and you continue to demonstrate your holiness and goodness and faithfulness daily. God, as we come to our text today, we acknowledge how much we can fret as Ian already prayed as we looked at the psalm. How easy it is to fret in light of the evildoers all around us in the midst of fretting, in the midst of worrying, how easy it is to lose sight of this body and lose sight of the essential need of unity amongst this body. And so God, in hopes that we would maintain the unity that we need to resist the temptations of this world, to maintain a steadfast and peaceful and quiet spirit, we pray that today you might bring us to a greater understanding of the role of prayer. Might you bring us to a greater appreciation of, of how our prayers ought to sound, where our prayers ought to take place, and how our hearts must stand before you as we come before you in prayer. God, as always, we pray for any unbeliever who's here, God. We pray for their salvation. 
knowing that ultimately they need you, they need salvation, and it only can come through your son, Jesus Christ. So save them today. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might this be yet another reminder of how much we have in common and how beneath all the divisions, all the disagreements we might have, ultimately we are sons and daughters of you, God, and that is all that matters. And so might we live in light of that. We love you, God. We praise you. Be with us now, we ask. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, as we get started to discuss what unifying prayer requires, we begin somewhat in the middle of the discussion, the argument that Paul made last week. And as we do, we see this, this unifying content that must be present in all of our prayers. Pick it up again in verse 7. There Paul says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. If you were with us last week, you perhaps recall the the broader argument Paul is making. That argument being why we need to pray for all people, specifically all rulers and authorities. We discussed last week how challenging this would have been for those believers in Ephesus. For this would have meant they were praying for people like Nero, for political rulers that despised the church. And yet we discussed why that prayer was so important. As we saw last week, that prayer is important because ultimately it's a reflection of of our Father. It's a reflection of God. And essential to that then, or related to that, is the idea that it is that type of prayer that ultimately speaks the gospel. The universal nature of the gospel and how it is applied to both Jew and Gentile. And this was particularly important in Timothy's situation because it seems the false teachers were attempting to to kind of stray from that idea. They were going back primarily to focus on genealogies and things that suggested a, a focus only on those of a Jewish background, a Jewish faith. And so as Paul continues to finish up this argument of why we must pray in a certain way, he reminds us that this prayer must be rooted in the gospel, there in verse 7. And to make this point clear, Paul points to his unique position, the authority that was given to him by none other than Jesus Christ. Paul summarized this by referring to himself in three terms. He describes himself first as an apostle, or I should say as a preacher or a herald, an apostle, and finally a teacher. Now, if you were with us when we began our study in 1 Timothy, uh, one of those words should already be pretty familiar, that idea of being an apostle. As Paul began the letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 1, it is that idea he begins with, for he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To be an apostle meant that the Paul, like the other apostles, carried with him a very unique sense of authority. An authority that was reserved for a select few of people, those select few that were chosen by Jesus Christ himself. Not just anyone could be an apostle. There were certain rules, certain requirements for that. And if you want to study that more, I encourage you to go back and listen to those earlier verses in 1 Timothy. But we understand again, as Paul makes this argument, he points to that role, to that position that was given to him by Jesus Christ. But in addition to that role, He adds these other two words that both, I think, add weight, give weight to the general argument that he's making. To make his point clear, he describes himself as both a preacher or herald as well as a teacher. Now, preacher, or again, depending on your interpretation, herald is a very effective word to use in this particular case when it comes to the role of of proclaiming a certain truth. For a herald was, in essence, a messenger boy. A herald was the person that was given a message by the king, He would then deliver it to the town, deliver it to the province. 
and then post it somewhere in public so that it could be remembered and continue to be communicated. Perhaps one of the closest things in our own history to this is the idea of a town crier. Maybe if you've been down to to some of the the villages that still kind of act like and pretend that they're still in colonial America, you've seen this, or you have this idea in mind of the person ringing a bell saying, hear ye, hear ye. That person, the town crier, was responsible for carrying the important news of the day throughout the town, throughout the village, and then posting it somewhere so that people could understand what it was they needed to know. Now, we live in a world in which it is hard to, to find a similar position, You might think of the classic picture of the nightly news reporter handed a a bulletin just as it's arrived, and they say, you know, this just in, and they they read the very specific announcement. I confess, I don't know what the equivalent is that to to Twitter. I don't know what this looks like today. But even if that position has somewhat died out, you understand the basic role. That role of someone who is not making up news, someone who's not making up a new message, someone who rather is handed a bulletin, handed a piece of information and told, go tell this to everyone. When you see it in that that picture, then you understand how effective it was when describing Paul, for that is all he saw himself as. He was a messenger boy for Jesus Christ. He was given a very specific, specific role a very specific message, and he saw to it the rest of his life as an apostle, as a herald, simply to deliver that message over and over and over again. The question, of course, we must understand then, is what was the message? If he was a herald, if he was a teacher, what was his curriculum? What was the message handed out to him? And the obvious answer of that, of course, is nothing other than the gospel. As he says in verse 7, for this I was appointed. For this message, I was appointed a herald. For this message, I was given authority to proclaim it day in and day out. That message of the gospel, of course, being, first and foremost, the idea of Christ being crucified. But along with that, the message being Christ crucified and resurrected for all, both Jew and and Gentile. This was Paul's entire ministry, specifically to the Gentiles. Paul was given this command, given this message, all the way back in Acts chapter 9. This was his ministry. It would have been shocking at the initial call, of course, because Paul was a Jew among Jews. He had that community down, but as a Jew, he was sent out to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. And he was given this message to give them over and over and over again that Christ died for your sins. He was given the message to preach over and over again that we are saved by grace through faith, not because of our ethnic background, not because of anything our great-grandparents did, but because of the faith we put in Christ and the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul alludes to that basic gospel message in his ongoing ministry in passages like 1 Corinthians 15. You don't need to turn there, but he summarizes this language when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve, and he goes on and on discussing that idea. This is the message he preaches over and over and over and over again. And just as he repeatedly spoke to that crucifixion, spoke to that resurrection, Paul also repeatedly speaks to that universal nature of the gospel. It is for the Jew, it is for the Gentile. It is for the slave, it is for the free man. It is for the man, it is for the woman. It is for everyone. 
if you have any doubt of how central that universality of the gospel was to Paul's ministry, well, just read through his epistles. And you will see that Paul repeatedly is going back to that universal nature of the gospel over and over and over again. If you turn, for instance, to the book of Romans, perhaps Paul's most famous letter, it is this universal nature of the gospel that it begins with. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. There in verse one, or chapter 1, I say, say 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you, that is in Rome, and I've been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as amongst the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my, my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes for the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul, writing to the Romans, then speaks to the universal offer of the gospel, to the Greek, to the Jew. You move past Romans chapter 1 and you get to passages like 1 Corinthians 9. He says the same idea. 1 Corinthians 5, he speaks to that universal offer. Galatians takes up this primary theme throughout all of it. The importance of understanding that you do not need to return to some Jewish practice, but it is open to Jew and Gentile alike. The letter to the Ephesians picks up the same element in Ephesians chapter 2 and speaks of the universal offer to Jew and Gentile, Greek, to the Romans, the slave and free man. Colossians chapter 3 speaks of the appeal to both Gentile and Jew. 1 Thessalonians 2, Titus 2, Philemon. In other words, in nearly every single epistle Paul writes, this universal nature of the gospel takes center stage. Regardless of the problem being addressed in all these churches, Paul understood that the, the solution, at least in part, related to understanding the gospel is open to everyone. The gospel's available equally to Jew and Gentile. It's the point he makes constantly. And the reason why he makes this point constantly is because Paul understood that it was central to the gospel itself. He understood that if the church forgot this element of the gospel, that if it reverted to the cultural practices of the day, they wouldn't just lose unity, they would lose Christ. And so Paul, reminding Timothy, Paul reminding the church in Ephesus, says... It is that gospel that my entire life is built upon, that my entire ministry is intended to reflect. And it is thus this gospel, he is saying, that must characterize our ongoing prayers. The centrality, and, uh, the centrality of that message and the repetitiveness of it is so important for us to understand today. And it's important for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, it's important so that we too might understand it is central to the gospel. But it's also important because it's pretty clear from the beginning this universal offer is something that the church struggled to believe. From the beginning, this was one of the most offensive points of the gospel, the idea that it didn't matter what your background was, what your ethnicity was, what the religious heritage you shared was, that Christ is for all. That was something each church seemingly debated and struggled to uphold, no doubt because of all the cultural pressures and the struggles that it would present. This was certainly the case in the city where Timothy was serving, for it is clear that there in Ephesus, the believers were straying a bit further and further away from this universal offer. 
It was from this offer to the Gentiles that these false teachers were, were discouraging these believers. And so you can imagine the sort of pressure that this would place upon someone like Timothy. Someone like Timothy is already facing a complicated issue in these false teachers, and someone like Timothy, who no doubt then perhaps would have been fearful to, to pinning his finger on something that was so sensitive, something that would have been so offensive. And yet to discourage that tendency, Paul tells him in essence, no, you have no choice. You have to keep this central. You have to understand that this is the gospel, and one of the best ways to do this, Paul is arguing, is that you pray this in your prayers daily. As you gather, you remind yourself and you remind the body that we serve a God that saves all. That we believe in a gospel that saves anyone and everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is in by no way asking Timothy to do something he did not already model for him. For throughout the letters of Paul, you see the sort of gospel central uh, centrality in his prayers. Consider, for instance, the prayer that he already prayed for the Ephesians. Back in the letter to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. There we read this, this gospel-rich prayer that Paul had prayed on their behalf. For this reason, he says in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit and in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul consistently was praying that the people under his care would understand this gospel, that they would understand that this blessing is available to all families of the earth, that they would grow up in the richness of love. And Paul prayed this because he understood that if they didn't understand that, well, then any other hopes of growth and unity would be fractured, would be lost. In the example of Paul, and the reminder of that unifying content, we have an important lesson for our own prayers today. For at a basic level, it's a reminder of the fact that when we pray, we are teaching something about God, are we not? We are proclaiming how we view God. And we are proclaiming what is most valuable, what is most important to us as God's people. We oftentimes can forget this fact. But if any of you are relatively new to the faith or new to church, you no doubt understand the value of prayers. For you hear the people of God, or you ought to hear the people of God pray in a way that is different from culture around you. And you ought to be able to listen to our prayers and in those prayers learn something about who God is about his holiness, about his glory, about his faithfulness. Not only that, as, as people hear our prayers, they should be able to learn something about who his son, Jesus Christ, is, what Jesus Christ did to save us from our sins, and how we ought to live in response to that. In the same way that our corporate singing is to be an activity in which we are reminding each other central truths of the, of the faith, so too are our prayers. They are to be reminders for ourselves and for everyone around us of who it is we serve and why this matters. And if we're to pray a prayer that is in line with what Paul is calling for, we must pray a prayer that is at least in part marked by gospel content. For it is that gospel that unites us. It is that gospel that overcomes the typical barriers that tend to separate and divide believers and unbelievers alike. And so if we're to experience the type of prayer that Paul is calling for, we must first and foremost make sure that our prayers contain the right content the right message, that we're not proclaiming a semi-gospel, 
And we're not claiming a half-truth, but we're going back to that foundational message over and over and over again. That is the essential content. But having said that, as I've already been discussing this, I, of course, have assumed that these prayers are happening where other people can hear us. And that leads us to the second point, the second part of of what, what, what allows this prayer to be so unifying. To understand that second point, you must see this prayer given in a particular context. Look back with me at 1 Timothy 2 when we see that context. In verse 8, there Paul says, In light of this, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. In light of the type of prayers we're we're, we're commanded to offer, according to Paul, in light of that, we now must then put into practice this prayer regularly, consistently. In order to understand what Paul is commanding here, it's important to understand a couple of points. First, the location, that is the the geographical location this is happening, but also the, the people that he's saying ought to be the ones praying, for he specifically calls out men. And why does he do that? In response to the first question regarding its location, Paul again uses this language of men in every place to pray. He wants people in every place to pray. And at first glance, it could seem as if Paul is, in verse 8, calling all men at least to regularly walk around with our hands up and everywhere we go to pray. Thankfully, for the sake of application, I don't think that's what Paul is calling us to do. For when Paul speaks of every place, I think he more likely has in mind every place of worship. This point is made clear as we move forward in 1 Timothy. And as we'll see in the coming months, that Paul's principal concern here is for corporate worship. That's his main concern. This is why he will be getting into the roles of elders and deacons. This is why he will be getting concerns of of how we take care of widows and, and take care of those who minister, because Paul is concerned about the local church. You can see this, I think, in a fairly black and white manner if you just skip ahead to 1 Timothy 3. There in 1 Timothy 3, Verse 14, Paul writes this, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This again is not coming for another number of weeks uh, in our study, but, but it's important to read now because again it reminds us of the context in which Paul is discussing these things. No doubt it was important for Timothy to understand because, again, Paul is calling Timothy to to fight the good fight. And even as we hear that language in our own culture today, we tend to apply it to how can we be greater cultural warriors? And what does it mean to fight the good fight out on the streets and online? And those things, of course, are worth discussing. But that is not Paul's primary concern. The primary fight Paul is calling Timothy to wage war in, and I think the primary fight that we must all first attend to is understanding of what this looks like here, amongst family. How can we guard ourselves? How can we make sure that we are upholding the faith? And it's within that particular context, then, that Paul is calling for that which we typically refer to as corporate prayer. Praying together as a body. We did this just a few minutes ago with Ian. It's what we do anytime someone stands up here and prays. It's intended to be a corporate activity. It's a point that I think would have been obvious to Paul's original audience, for this is something we consistently see done throughout the Word of God. Just as we said last week, when we said the people of God have always been people who pray, that is assumed, 
We can also say the people of God are consistently people who pray together. They worship together, corporately. You see this in the Psalms of Ascent in the Old Testament. You see this in books like Nehemiah and 1 Kings when people come together and they pray together or one man, one leader stands up and prays on their behalf. You, I believe, see this corporate prayer assumed and instructed by Jesus Christ and the Lord's Prayer when he instructs us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our sins, give us our daily bread. There is that presumed corporate activity. While this does not excuse or deny the importance of individual prayer, of course, it, it does speak to the idea that, that generally speaking, we're, we're praying with brothers and sisters. Of course, we're praying as a church. And it's something the New Testament church certainly picked up. From a passage we read last week, Acts 2.42, you see that they were regularly devoting themselves to prayer. The assumption there being corporate prayer. They were praying with brothers and sisters, corporately crying out to God, bringing their request before him. To use the language of 1 Timothy 2 then, they are corporately offering all prayers and petitions and thanksgivings together. This is the tradition of the church, and it's something many of us experience weekly, although I fear it's an experience many of us can, can diminish or overlook. Certainly as a kid growing up in the church, corporate prayer to me was a good excuse to catch a little shut-eye in the middle of the service. It seemed perfect. We didn't stand up for corporate prayer. We sat down. So I, in my younger years, in my less godly years, would, of course, you know, clasp my hands. I would very respectfully place my head on the pew in front of me and shut my eyes. And I thought, no one has any idea. No one knows that I'm falling asleep. I, of course, assure you children who have the same idea, we all know. It's pretty obvious when you're sleeping because your head kind of falls off to the side. But in my mind, that was the role of corporate prayer. I didn't understand why this guy I didn't know was getting up and praying for however knows how many minutes. And I assumed it was kind of a waste of time. But hopefully we all understand it, it's far from that. For when anyone stands up in front of the congregation to pray, they are in essence taking us by the hand and leading us as a corporate body before the presence of God. They represent every single one of us as they stand and pray. And so as the same way that we eagerly involve ourselves in the singing of worship as a body, we do the same as a body when someone prays, and we respond by saying things like, Amen, at the end. Again, it's an activity that might go without you even noticing, but it's important. For you are saying, yes, this is true. Yes, this is for me as well. We do it as a family because we understand the significant privilege it is. We understand we are doing something that thousands upon thousands of Christians and churches have done throughout the centuries. We are going before our Savior as a body, asking for his blessing to be upon us. And when you understand it in that context, when you understand just how important that activity is, then you can understand why Paul chooses to, to hone in on this activity of worship in his instruction on how to fight the good fight. For again, remember the context into which Paul is writing. Paul is writing a church that is divided. Paul is writing a church in which there are a variety of false teachers who are picking the congregation apart. And Paul then is trying to instruct Timothy of how he can bring some, some unity back to that body. How can you possibly do that in, in light of those pressures? Well, as Paul says, one of the key ways you do that, Timothy, is, is you pray. When you come together, 
There are those people who stand up and pray, and they pray the right thing. So those false teachers might be reminded of the truth, and hopefully so those false teachers that they hold on to it can be shamed and driven out, ultimately, if they prove to not hold to the true gospel. So that your average layperson can hear you, Timothy, can hear others pray the gospel, and they can remember, okay, yeah, that's what we believe. That's what unifies us. So regardless of what I hear outside the walls of this church, that prayer represents the faith. And so it is in the context of the local church, in the context of that worship setting, that Paul says, Timothy, make sure people are praying, and of course praying in line with all the things we already mentioned, in line with the gospel. It was essential in the days of the Ephesians, and it remains essential to us today. But having said that, Paul doesn't simply call for people to pray, does he? He says, therefore, I want men in every place to pray. This brings up a very touchy, difficult subject then, doesn't it? Why is Paul instructing men to pray? And does this mean Paul is saying women can never pray in the church? Well, I think the clear answer to that is is no. Paul is not saying women don't have the ability to pray or women cannot do that. You can find proof of that in passages like 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul references the fact of women praying in the church. That's not the point Paul is making. He certainly will get into a discussion of the role of women in the church, passage, thankfully, your senior pastor will be addressing, and not not me. (laughs) He will discuss that, but that's not the point he's making here. Here, I believe, Paul is, is highlighting the men, because again, he's leading into a central problem that is going on in this church at Ephesus. Namely, it is a church that's been divided again by false teachers, who are undoubtedly many men, And therefore, to bring about unity, Paul is requiring and calling out men who still understand the truth to willingly and with courage stand up and pray. Lead your people. That absence of leadership or the need of leadership is something Paul will get into much more later on in this book when he talks about the requirements of elders in particular. Paul understands that central to this calling, central to fighting the good fight, is is Timothy having backup. Is Timothy not taking care of it all by himself, but Timothy having other godly men around him who can lead the congregation in this calling and the willingness to take on false teaching and the willingness to continue to lead the people of Ephesus in a manner that is in accordance with the truth. Paul, in all these verses throughout this chapter, is concerned about this order and making sure there's an orderliness to the church and making sure that the distractions of the world are not seeping into the worship in Ephesus. That is a central concern. And so in order to fight that, Paul is calling for these men and all their places of worship to pray. Again, we see the importance in Scripture, and I think we can still see the importance today. And it's a reminder that as we gather together of, of how every facet of our worship service is important. There's no throwaway aspect of the service. Maybe announcements. Maybe announcements. But certainly not prayer. Certainly not worship. They are all activities in which we are actively, as one body, standing in God's presence. Reminding ourselves, reminding our brothers and sisters of who we are, of the God we worship, and singing out of respect and reverence for that God. Reminding them of who he is and what he has promised to do for his people. That is the context of powerful and unifying prayer. But of course, as we finish our text, we see that that activity of corporate prayer itself, by itself, is not enough. In the same way that I discussed in the beginning, that that simply calling something team building doesn't magically make it team building. 
Just actively engaging in prayer doesn't mean you're doing what God calls you to do. For as Paul finishes up this discussion, he speaks also of the essential posture to this prayer. That is our attitude, where our heart must be in order for this prayer to truly be unifying and effective. For there in verse 8 again we read, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Here as Paul describes his activity of prayer, he speaks both of a physical posture, but more importantly, he speaks of the internal reality of the one praying. The main focus here is not the lifting of hands, but as I say, I'm not saying that is, is what we must do, but it's the lifting of holy hands. That's what's required for effective corporate prayer. As Paul describes this requirement of purity, he uses language that no doubt would have been familiar to those of a Jewish background, for I think it's a callback to the requirements of priests who offered their sacrifices on behalf of the Israelites. In passage perhaps like Exodus chapter 30. For in Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 17, we read these requirements. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it when they enter the tent of meeting. They shall wash with water so they will not die or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so they will not die and it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and for his descendants throughout their generations. Here in the Old Testament, we see this picture that is intended again to communicate the holiness of God. It's intended to communicate the right mindset, the right heart posture of a priest offering a sacrifice. For they could not simply half-heartedly throw a sacrifice before God. No, they had to go through a very careful process. A process that was marked with ritual purification. Now God, of course, was not concerned about germs contaminating the sacrifice. He was concerned that the people of God would understand how serious this matter is. They would understand the seriousness of their sin, the seriousness of God's holiness. And so the priest would ritually cleanse themselves as a picture of what they're trying to do, what must be done internally in order to be in the presence of a holy God. We, of course, do not have the same practice in the New Testament, but we see New Testament authors like Paul pick up the similar language of purity and the need to have purity before God in order for our worship to be effective. We understand that in one way, we are already pure. We can't overlook that fact. For Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that we have already been washed. We've already been cleansed because of Christ. The filth that can never be taken away by water or by soap is taken away by the blood of Jesus. And praise God for that. For apart from that internal purification, we could never stand in the presence of God without dropping dead. Yet while that purification has happened, we're still simultaneously given that ongoing calling to purify ourselves. To remove that which is filthy, remove that which causes us to be impure. You can pick up this language in a number of texts, but consider, for instance, in the book of James. In the book of James, chapter 4, we read the same type of language. This language of verse 8, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Similar way, 1 Peter chapter 3 speaks of this purity, or speaks of the reason why we have to have this posture. You husbands, the same way with your wives, live in an understanding way as with someone who is weaker. Since she is a woman, show, herself, show her honor as a fellow heir of grace, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Again, it speaks of the need of certain behavior in order for your prayers to be effective. Throughout Scripture, we are commanded to ensure that we are not allowing anything impure to be dwelling in our hearts. Reminded consistently that we must confess that sin, we must repent of that sin, because in some ways it really does stand as a barrier between us and God. It, it affects negatively our attempt to worship Him. You see that, of course, very clear in the book of Exodus, where a failure to do this is deadly. And you see the warning as well in 1 Timothy and elsewhere. In the case of Timothy, Paul doesn't simply leave it to speculation as to what is causing the impurity, but he speaks of the reality there in verse 8, doesn't he? For he says, you are to lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You want to know what's, what's affecting their prayers negatively? Paul says, well, it's wrath. It's anger, and it's this constant debating that is taking place. And the picture you have in both First and Second Timothy is this picture of false teachers, again, who are obsessed with genealogies, obsessed with arguing and debating with one another. And you can so easily picture what happens, can't you? You picture these people standing out in the lobby, getting in heated debates with one another, speaking poorly of one another, pointing out where other people are failing miserably, and then walking in very calmly to the worship center, putting a smile on their face, singing songs and praying prayers, all the while assuming what they're doing is acceptable before God. But it's not. That wrath, that dissension, that debate, Paul says, is destroying the body. And it's negating their otherwise glorious and God-honoring practices, specifically with prayer. In the case of Ephesus, it seems there was a particular struggle with this dissension, with arguing and debating but we must acknowledge that it wasn't just in Ephesus this was happening. If you read elsewhere in the New Testament, you've seen passages like Colossians 3, the same language of, of dissension and wrath that is tearing people apart. Ephesians 4, Paul speaks this reality as well. Throughout the New Testament era, then, you can see how the people of God were regularly divided, fighting with one another. And if we're honest, I think we can all see how sadly the church didn't move on from that in the days of Paul, did they? We still live in a world of perpetual annoyance. We live in a culture that encourages you to, to consider every hill worth dying on. As if, as if you have to prove that you are right in every situation. And if everyone, anyone else disagrees, well, it's a matter of the gospel. And so you will stand on every hill. You will fight with every Christian you can. You will post whatever post you can post and assume that that is the picture of righteousness. And it's not. There are, of course... Fights worth having, divisions that are worth maintaining on certain gospel truths. But generally speaking, to use the language earlier of 1 Timothy 2, we're to live quiet lives, lives of dignity, lives of tranquility. We're to be at peace with all men so far as it depends upon us. And so just as much as the believers in Ephesus needed to hear this, so too do we need to hear this reminder of the fact that we must strive to push against that wrath, that dissension that so oftentimes seeps its way into our hearts. The reason being that it will 
negatively impact our prayers. We read that already in 1 Peter 3 where Peter tells husbands, husbands, if you fail to live with your wife in an honorable way, your prayers will be hindered. The same sort of mentality can be picked up in a book like Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 speaks of this ability and, and what, it, what, it, what, it, what it causes. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 13, God says, bring your worthless offerings no longer. And incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Paul here is saying nothing different than Isaiah said before. And it is the calling to ensure that as we practice these worship, the, 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 these disciplines, as we come together for prayer, we must ensure that we are not divided against one another. And so as we come before to pray, well, what do we do? We, we do exactly what Isaiah said. We seek to live humble and justice lives. We do what Jesus said in Matthew 5 when he says, before you offer that sacrifice, make sure you go and, and you make things right with your brother. We regularly seek reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ. As we come to church, we do not take lightly matters of division that exist amongst us. No, we take them with the utmost seriousness. And we do everything we can to be at peace with each other because we must see that if we come divided and if we embrace that division, our prayers are ineffective. And any hope of attaining some broader sense of unity is lost. And so we, like the believers in Ephesus, are encouraged to come before or come together regularly, remembering the gospel message. We're to come together regularly, praying the gospel message. And we're reminded to come to each other regularly, putting that gospel into practice. And we do this all, at least in part, in our prayers. And so as we close this discussion of 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, it is such an important reminder of of why we do what we do and why our worship is so important. For as we come together each week, we come together in the midst of a dark world that is full of conflict, full of division. Let us not allow that division and that conflict and the countless other impurities of our culture to seep into what happens here. We should be different. This has to be different. But in order to maintain that difference, let us put into practice exactly what Paul is saying. Let us pray as we're called. And so unbelievers, as we close, the calling is that calling of reconciliation. The calling is the invitation of the gospel. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of your background, if you confess your sins and believe in your heart that that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Do that today. As always, if you have any questions about that, please seek me out afterwards. I'll be in the lobby. I'm happy to talk. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us make praying the gospel a daily habit as it is a reminder to who we are and why we exist. Let us, even today and in the coming weeks, participate in corporate prayer in a way that we generally do not. Let us see it as a privilege. Let us see it as an opportunity to to strengthen our, our church. 
But as we do so, let us be careful to regularly be reconciled with one another, knowing that those relationships do impact our worship, and knowing that if we are to fight the good fight, we need our fellow soldiers on the battlefield, and we cannot be at war with each other. With that being said, let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to worship you, and we thank you, God, for this gospel reminder. Might we daily remember the gospel? Might we experience the unity that can only come through the gospel? And every time we gather, both in our prayers, in our worship, and in our interaction, God, might that gospel be continually upon our lips. We love you, God, and we praise you. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.